Welcome to the uh, the next episode of Flying Podcast, and uh, this episode, I think, number eight. Uh, today I'm on my way to see Sheila Dyson. Uh, now, some of us dream of great flying adventures, uh, but Sheila's actually gone out there and done it. Uh, as I mentioned, I think, in one of the earlier Flying Podcast episodes, I've uh, thought about flying over to France one, one summer, uh, but that's pretty pathetic, really, compared with uh, Sheila's journey. Anyway... Won't go on any more. Let's have a, a listen to Sheila's interview. Hi, Sheila. Good morning. Um, with Sheila Dyson, um, perhaps you could start, Sheila, by just uh, telling me um, what made you take up flying in the first place. I'd wanted to fly since the age of seven. Um, I went on a journey to Manchester on a BEA Vanguard. Gee whiz. And I went with my parents and my brother. My parents were very old-fashioned. And my brother was offered a chance to go up on the flight deck. And nobody asked me. And that was it. <laughs> Ever. It was about 35 years before I saw a flight deck. And I was absolutely thrilled when I saw it. It was everything that I ever imagined it and I was just completely hooked and that was on my first visit to Netherthorpe when I decided finally that I was going to try and learn to fly. And you actually learnt at Netherthorpe which is a small grass strip near near Sheffield for those that don't know. I learned to fly at Netherthorpe with Sheffield Aero Club and there's a little bit of kudos from flying out of Netherthorpe because it is the smallest licensed airfield in England. Our long runway with the starter extension is all of 500 metres, and our short runway, which is on a hill, is 380 metres. So there's a lot of interesting arrivals and departures, and at times um, a very peculiar pattern in the hedge. <laughs> and how long ago was it you actually learnt to fly? I started in September of 94. I got my licence in November 95. OK, and at some point you decided to do something quite remarkable in terms of um, a flight, and that was? To fly to Australia. Why on earth did you decide to fly to Australia? Well, I've done a number of big journeys in my life. I've My big background, actually, is even bigger than flying, is in mountaineering, and I'd always wanted to go and see Mount Everest and go and make a journey on Antarctica. And when I came into flying, it just seemed the most natural thing in the world to make the classic journey from England to Australia. And I can remember we had some Tuesday night lectures and I'm sitting there with the group at half time and saying, well, what do you want to do with your flying? And the words just popped out of my mouth. I'm going to fly to Australia, I said. And my friend Wilf Haynes said, well, it'll take you at least 10 years. And I thought, no, it won't. It actually took me 11 <laughs> to, get, to get around to doing it. OK. Um, you actually own your own aircraft, don't you? Yes, this one... I never thought I'd be in a position to own my own aircraft, but it is a priority in my life. And about three or four years ago, I was left a legacy, and I thought, this is it. I'm just going to use this for what I really want to do, which was to fly to Australia. And that's a 172? It's a 182, 182. called Charlie. Right. Gulf Charlie, Charlie, Yankee Sierra. And this was the aircraft you actually flew to Australia in? Yes. And it's, I brought it back, and it's now sitting very happily at Netherthorpe. Uh, who did you actually do the flight with? It wasn't alone, was it? You had a, a team of you? I did have a team. I certainly didn't want to fly on my own because I just didn't. Mm -hmm. I think you know by instinct the sort of journey you want to make. And I actually advertised twice in the aviation press in Flyer and Pilot. And um, I had 30 inquiries, all quite serious inquiries. 
a few dropped off because family pressures but in the end I chose to fly with Neville Tate who's a retired headmaster from Stockton on Tees and Amanda Harrison was another woman pilot that um, was very interested but she had to drop out so in the end I met up with John Greasley who's a fellow member at Sheffield Aero Club and very happily he was sort of it was either that or an extension to his house, and he chose to fly to Australia, which I think was really sensible. Yes, correct. Yeah. But he was very, very useful. He was ex-Oriac avionics technician, and he'd worked the tower at Gamston, and he was a trained mechanic in his youth, so he actually had a huge amount of practical skill to bring along. Neville was probably the most adventurous of us. I tend to be, although I've got big ideas, I'm quite cautious. And John is a mixture of caution and just getting on, getting a job done. So it was a blend, three very different people, but it worked out fine. Uh, in terms of flying experience, what did you each bring to the to the table? Did anyone have, like, uh, instruments or uh, anything like that? The idea was to find an instrument-rated pilot, but try as I might, somebody got a collapse lung, somebody decided he was getting married instead, and so on. Another one, his wife said definitely he wasn't going. So, in the end, I thought, well, you either just get on with it as you are. And what we brought to it, the three of us are PPLs. I've got an IMC, but essentially I'm a VFR pilot. Mm -hmm. John is IMC, but he's he's quite a neat instrument pilot. And Neville was basically a VFR pilot. And we, I think we all had our night ratings. At least I certainly had mine and John had his. So between us, because on all the flights that we did, we each of us were involved it was a pilot and a navigator. We swapped roles. And the person sitting in the back was just keeping an overall eye on things yeah. between, in between snoozing. So it was a really good team effort. And having three minds focused on it um, was also very, very helpful to the pilot because there's somebody there always at your side helping you. And that was another thing that was quite important before we set off, which is where you've got to have a clear understanding as to how things are going to be in the air and about decision-making. Because we're all pilots, we're all perfectly capable of making decisions. Of course, we've all got our own ideas. And I ran this agreement past Martin Robinson of AOPA, who was really helpful. And basically, it's setting the thing out very straightforwardly. And we concluded on the um, decision-making front, on any given day, before we ever set out, if anyone was really unhappy about it, we didn't fly. Now, that actually never happened because we tended to reach agreements naturally, which is much the best way. Once in the air, the pilot flying had the final say, but he needed or she needed to take into account the views of the other two pilots. Because if they're both sitting there saying, you know, this is wrong, clearly something's going to, there's going to be a bit of a Barney at the very least. But, you know, you've got to get this sorted before you start. And um, probably... When we were flying over Burma, from Chittagong in Bangladesh into Burma, and this was probably the biggest flying adventure of the whole trip, we'd um, that morning three very odd things happened. I left my purse on the table in the restaurant. Now this is pertinent in its own way, and I didn't realise till I got back up to the eighth floor that I'd left it behind. So I shot back down to reception. And the lady's saying, we found it, it's on its way. And I got it back intact five minutes later. Great. Then Neville and I were coming down in the lift and the lift got stuck. 
And we were there for another 15 minutes until this very friendly black face appeared. said, we will have you out shortly. And then when we got down to the ground floor, the taxi didn't arrive. And you just get the impression somebody's trying to tell you something here. Anyway, we got to the airport, got through everything, and we took off at 10 past 11, which was miles too late, because this is the area of the intertropical convergence zone, or the monsoon. And I don't know if you're aware, but that's an area of about three to 500 miles wide on either side of the equator, and it sort of wobbles during the year. And Anyway, it is the monsoon, and the thunderstorms come up at lunchtime, so mm -hmm. taking off at 10 past 11 wasn't a great idea, but the weather was beautiful. So we headed off down the east coast of Bangladesh um, to a place called Cox's Bazaar. And then you go east over the mountains of Burma, which go up to nine or 10,000 feet. And um, then you sort of drop, we were dropping down into Chiang Mai, northern Thailand. But anyway, as we turned inland, we saw all these clouds building up. And before we knew it, we we're in 11,000, 12,000 feet going up like an elevator. And John, who was sitting in the back, it's one of these things you think, will we just get past this? But of course we didn't. And it was John sitting in the back said, I think we ought to turn back. With a little silence. I think we ought to turn back. We turned back. Mm -hmm. And then we heard an airliner at 35,000 feet wanting a big diversion from the airway route because of a huge weather cell. So we had two and a half hours into a six-hour flight and back to Chittagong. So we were five hours in the air and still where we started. Unfortunately, Burma doesn't talk to the outside world, although we found the air traffic control people brilliant, but they've no avgas. And to land at Rangoon would have been ideal, but there was no avgas, and um, we only saw it as an emergency alternative. So back into Chittagong and the very nice police inspector Lovely fact, had the most dazzling smile. It just make you melt. Well, it did me anyway. And um, we told him our problem. He said, I'll be here for you at half past six in the morning. And he was. Good service, isn't it, from the police? Absolutely. Well, he, was, he, was just, he was just so common sensible and very efficient, actually. We just, we just got on with him. And then um, next morning he was there and we, we actually took off at ten past eight, which was still late. But um, we headed down again to Cox's Bazaar over the mountains and Yangon or Rangoon ATC once again gave us a diversion to keep us away from another big weather cell. And they really helped us without us even asking. Mm -hmm. They could see it, we couldn't. And um, finally we entered Thai airspace and landed in Chiang Mai. And that was, that was great. Did you have any special equipment on board, like for navigation, GPS, any sort of weather well, equipment, or um, I presume you took... Um, we had GPSs coming out our ears. Yeah. Um, John persuaded us to buy a sky map, because that was the one he was used to, and it was superb. I used a Garmin 196, once you've got your own, yeah. you're familiar with it, and you're reluctant to try something different, which I suppose wasn't such a good thing, really. Neville had got a 296, and I borrowed another Garmin 96, or a really old one, mm -hmm. from somebody else who'd got a database for Australians. So we actually had four GPSs. And we took a handheld radio, which we never really used. And we, one of the things that we took was one of these... Um, Oh, one of these emergency locator beacons that attaches, has a GPS, yeah. and we registered it with the British Coast Guard. 
we thought that this was a very worthwhile investment because no matter where you come down, they're going to know about mm -hmm. it. And what you do is you have an emergency contact person in the UK, which was a very close friend of mine, called Cy Yardley. And basically, he's got all the details and the route, and he knows roughly where you are. So if the Coast Guard will ring him up and say, you know, what's happened? Do you know anything about this? And he'll say, well, it seems to be the case. You need to do something about it. And we thought that was much better than the man sitting in a shack in the desert. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a life raft and such like? Oh, yes, we did have a life raft. We had to, we hired a life raft from Southeastern Marine Service. We actually, we also hired the emergency locator beacon from them as well. And um, a big 20, I don't know if I weighed 20 kilos but it was awfully heavy, but it had everything, seasickness, no doubt a bar of chocolate somewhere, flares, all the usual stuff. But we thought if we're going this far, we want a good quality life raft. It's not like the one that you might just throw in the back on a summer's day across the channel. Well, that, uh, that actually might be more hazardous than being in the warmer oceans yeah. down south. I was thinking um, you've got quite a lot of equipment there, but your 182 can carry quite a lot, can't it? The 182 is a tremendous weightlifter, um, and I suppose we are slightly overweight. We kept our luggage to the minimum. Um, we had seven pieces of luggage, which every time we went into every airport and hotel, you always counted your luggage. But yes, it does carry quite a bit, and we also had uh, three cases of oil. <laughs> <laughs> the aeroplane did use a lot of oil mm -hmm. because it was an old engine, but the com every, it was in fl excellent flying condition but we had to do two 50-hour checks on the way wow. and one we did one in Bahrain and one in Darwin and John did those because it's a privately owned aircraft John did those and everywhere we went people just came to help us this was just amazing when we were in Bahrain um, we wanted to order out some we ordered some oil in advance because what you don't want to do is be anywhere and not have oil. And believe me, you'll go up and ask them and they won't have oil. Mm -hmm. That was most of the way. So we always carried, made sure we had got a fair bit spare. But you don't use your spare for your service. Mm -hmm. And we ordered some out from Transair, which was, you know, they were very helpful. And, but it, wasn't, it was just holding us up days. So in the end, our friend Yvonne Truman in um, Bahrain, who'd arranged for us to have an official welcome, which was lovely, because Sheikh Yusuf Mohammed Mahmoud, who's the head of uh, public relations at Civil Aviation Affairs, we were met on the tarmac. And this was just a lovely morning, because I was pilot for this one. And as we're coming into land, I think it was a 737, was waiting at the hold for us to clear and that's a lovely feeling when the big jets are waiting for you and over the radio comes, nice landing. I'll never forget <laughs> that. And it was nice because um, it was nice that it was a, an okay landing because of the people who met us there and they made a formal presentation of Bahraini Silver. But we did a 50-hour check in Bahrain and then we did the other one in Darwin. But even Civil Aviation Affairs sent us out an engineer to help us. We, we were okay on mm -hmm. our own, but... Yeah. This engineer is from Vietnam and he was absolutely, he was called Gabo, absolutely smashing. And he was one of the very few people we sent a postcard to from Australia because this guy went, just pulled out all the stops. What we didn't need to do on a 50-hour check, he did anyway. You know, he went over the whole engine and 
really helped us get it sorted. But Yvonne, talking about the oil, I've lost my thread there somewhere, but Yvonne had a friend who was in the Bahraini Air Force. So from the boot of a car comes another, what was it, I think 34 litres of um, oil. And it just goes to show how little and how much you know. This was the more expensive synthetic oil, which I'd never seen and never used. And I'm looking at this thing thinking, is this all right? So she put me on to her engineer friend. I kept saying, is this okay for my engine? <laughs> <laughs> so we had the King's Oil, and I've got a, a carton, an empty carton. I was so yeah. taken with this. I've got an empty carton in my pantry that sits on the shelf next to all the food and thinking that's from the King of Bahrain. <laughs> Uh, when did you set off? What, what year did you do this trip? We set off on Monday the 2nd of April 2007. You set off from Netherthorpe, fully loaded? No. I wanted to start from Netherthorpe. There was something about the idea of going from the smallest airfield mm -hmm. on the biggest journey, or so it seemed. Right. And even the 182 will not take off fully loaded. For, it just won't, not with three of us on board and full, because we long-range tanks. So we just basically started from Netherthorpe at 8 o'clock that morning, bang on time. And um, we flew, first leg, flew all the way to Gamston in thick haze. <laughs> and we loaded up again and started again from Gamston. But the official start was from Netherthorpe. And that was where our little record, because we wanted to make a new British national record for a flight in our class of aircraft from Netherthorpe to Cannes. Now, lots of other people have done the same journey, but they've not done it as a record. But this was just to add a little bit of zing to mm -hmm. the journey. And we flew eight hours that day. And we made it down to Cannes. And five minutes after we tied the aircraft down, the airport lights went out and everybody went home. And we had to escape through a security gate in the fence. <laughs> but we got our record. And the record is... Basically, it's um, for a flight from Netherthorpe to Cannes in a 182. How many miles is that, do you know? It's approximately 700 miles. When you're doing, it's what they call a point-to-point, -point, and you register it with the Royal Aero Club, the records section, and they send out forms with the Latin longitude of the start airfield and the finish airfield, and you can land as often as you like in between but you're only allowed two hours on the ground to refuel or whatever you need to do, and then you've got to be on your way or the record attempt is finished. So is that about the range of the, the 182, 700, 800 miles? It's, um, we are very conservative about it. According to the operator's manual, um, you can, if, you're, if you climb to 10,000 feet at 45% leaned off, um, you can get 900 miles. But we brought in, because it was a mature engine, we brought in all the parameters, all the safety margins, and we only would ever go for 700 miles. There might be a little bit over, but you always worked within that. And we did land at Dijon, and before that, South End. So we actually had, there was Gamston, Dijon, South End, and Dijon on the way to Cannes. Okay, and from Cannes, what route would you take then? Down through Italy, was it? We went down to Bastia and Corsica. Corsica is a beautiful island, but we just refuelled there and um, filed a flight plan for Naples. And again, this was my leg, and we were landing among the big jets. Ah, oh, brilliant. Mm -hmm. Because they have to fit you in, but you, yeah. you're part of it. You're on the same runway, you're doing the same things. 
part of it. I had to fly past Vesuvius. Well, I wasn't worried about Vesuvius. All I wanted to do was find this airport. Um, and another thing that's quite interesting is landing with tailwinds. When it's a really long runway, you stop worrying too much about tailwinds mm -hmm. because quite often if you're joining traffic, it's just so much easier for everyone concerned if you land with a tailwind. And because there's so much space, it's just not an issue. Yeah. As long as it's not a really horrible crosswind, which is a different kettle of fish again. And I would rather think we might either divert or certainly would avoid the issue as far as possible. Okay, so after Italy down to across the Med? Well, we went to overflew Brindisi on the heel of Italy, then to Kerkira on Corfu, overnighted there, and then over mainland Greece, and we passed the Corinthian Canal. And Greece is beautiful from the air, because there's still snow on top of the mountain, but it's a fabulous country from the air. Very, very striking. And we went to Heraklion on Crete, where we overnighted. And then we went across to Paphos on Cyprus. And then we headed down towards Africa. And again, there's 150 miles of the Mediterranean, and there's a little bit of apprehension, because it's the first of seven Muslim countries and that in itself is not the issue but you're coming into a very different culture and it's a continent that I knew very little about and of course another new country and it's the end of Europe and you're into foreign climes now and as we approach the Egyptian coast um, the Cairo ATC that I was working they came on frequency and told us Golf, Charlie, Charlie, Angus here. Turn back now 180 degrees to Sissim. And you sit there. Well, I sat there slightly stunned, thinking, why? You know, we've got a permit. We've filed a flight plan to go south. Why are they sending this north? And it turned out that Portside Military at the mouth of the River Nile had refused us entry to their airspace. And we're getting a bit twitchy about it. So Cairo just didn't quite yell at me. This, but said, expedite. And they told me why. And, of course, you turn back. But... Cairo has no Avgas. And you have to get your Avgas at 6th of October Airport, which is 35 miles out in the Western Desert. Fabulous flying over the desert. And um, you also need to clear customs. Now, Alexandria on the North Egyptian coast would be a really good place to do this at, except that um, they don't have Avgas. You know, you might have stayed there overnight and then gone on down to Luxor or whatever. So we took the choice of going to Cairo, landing, and then we'd have to take off again for the onward flight. It's only 35 miles, but it's not nice landing at an airport where there's no fuel. It's just not a good feeling. No. So anyway, when they wanted to give us this 150-mile diversion, I wasn't very happy about that. And I'm saying to John and Neville, because I was getting very worried about fuel, the last thing you want to do is be fretting about fuel and they did a quick check and said we've got enough but I told Kyra that I was concerned about fuel and the door is just open for you they even offered to let us land at a military airfield but it was only jet fuel so of course we said no but they cut this guy he could he must have heard it in my voice but he cut all the corners off but it's still a five-hour flight mm -hmm. and you come in over Cairo and thick fog and then when we landed our handling agent told us that the um, the uh, military airfield wouldn't be open to us until Wednesday. And this was Sunday. So we had three days in Cairo. We went to the National Museum and saw a couple of mummies. 
and the death mast of Tutankhamun, and we went to the pyramids at mm -hmm. Giza. But much more than the pyramids, I just loved the look of the desert. And the next day when we flew on to 6th of October, flying over the desert was just magic. It was to me. Maybe others would have viewed it very mm -hmm. differently, but it's the sense of sheer space and yeah. wildness. And that absolutely grabbed me. So we got our fuel and then we flew on to Luxor, where we stayed overnight. We weren't, you can't combine sightseeing on this trip or it'll take you three years. You, if you're having a rest day, even that you don't want to devote to sightseeing because you've only so much energy. So anyway, we took off from Luxor for Saudi Arabia and I went in there as a, an airline captain because I'd been, I'd spoken to a lot of commercial pilots and they said, well, as a woman going in there, you're nothing because it is very conservative. And basically you're a baggage to be claimed by a man. And um, they said, go as an airline pilot. So I phoned up Transair and bought my four gold bars. And the chap, it was so funny, the chap there says, I've never heard of such a rapid promotion to airline pilot. <laughs> and uh, you buy the uniform, you've got your AOPA aircrew badge, and John got me a captain's baseball cap with captain written on it. And you, <laughs> you've long sleeves because, you know, you have to also be respectful for other people's customs. It never had a problem at all. Um, John was more inclined to have a slight problem. This was one of the funniest moments. People often ask, what do you do about toilet in an mm -hmm. aircraft? Well, John and Neville broke brought Tesco milk bottles. And we rarely had to use them. In fact, I don't think they ever did. And Well, I'm not sure you really want to know what I did. But anyway, it doesn't matter. And uh, we, we landed at Jeddah. And the airport is a huge open area. There's just nowhere discreet a building to go behind or a tree or anything. There's just nothing. So John was caught short. And he used his milk bottle in a discreet moment. But then, of course, you have to dispose of it. Well, the previous New Year, a few of us had gathered at John's house to celebrate the New Year. And I brought a bottle of champagne, Moet at Shannon, with a very nice black presentation about a little drawstring. Anyway, this is what John had brought to cover his milk bottle. Of course, Saudi doesn't like uh, alcohol. Mm -hmm. You go to jail for alcohol. Yeah. So we are escorted into the building and our baggage was taken away to be scanned and we're standing there watching them do the passport bit and you always keep an eye on your baggage. You always look to see where your baggage is and you're counting bags even from a distance. But John and I saw it at the same time. The laughter's just coming up inside you. The security man had spotted the moored at Shandon the words on the yeah. side of the bag and his face almost lit up and he called his supervisor and he went, oh dear I've never seen John move <laughs> as fast and he goes shooting across the foyer and of course it's a language problem they're looking at him and looking at the bag and suddenly he just in sheer desperation says toilet aeroplane <laughs> and uh, if he'd said Semtex bomb <laughs> they just slung it back at him absolutely amazing they never even looked at it it was so funny <laughs> i remember that one yeah. do remember that one it's um it's a good one um so we just laughed but it was a bit nerve-wracking for john but we god we couldn't stop laughing if you if, if you wanted to put that into a sitcom yeah you just couldn't make that up it was just there so then on to Riyadh, where everything is a lot more formal and the only small discomfort i had there was in at dinner at night when 
we went up to the restaurant and they've got screens around the tables and it's to privacy for the women. And then an Arab man walked in in a very striking costume. It's very, it really is very attractive in its way. But what I felt very uncomfortable about was the wife walking the few feet behind, swathed in black. She didn't even have what they called a letterbox. It was sort of a mesh. Mm -hmm. And naturally you just think, this is not what I want. So I was, for that reason alone, I was quite glad to leave the next day because the longer you stay there, you do become aware of the very limiting situation for women. And you were wearing your airline captain's uniform at all times? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was, um, you just, as they say, you don't get respect for being a woman, you get respect for being a professional. So you, you're as smart as you can be as authoritative as you can be without being stupid about it and you just act with authority and you know what you're doing and just get on with it okay after the mid-east i'm sort of going back to my o-level geography do you have to go sort of iraqi irani sort of direction we went to bahrain and then we went to muscat in oman which is a lovely country and then you've got to cross the arabian sea now that was the tricky one politically because originally we changed our route eight times, depending on who was shooting at whom. And it was about two weeks after those sailors and marines were taken in the Gulf of Hormuz. Mm -hmm. So everybody was a little twitchy. And the route we had finally designed was going to take us to Gwadar, which is just inside the Pakistan border. Because there's an airfield there. There's no Avgas, but it seemed like a good place to aim for. And if we had any problems, we would be along the Pakistan coast. That seemed like it was a good flying tactic. But when I told the insurance company that it would take us within inside about 30 miles into Iranian airspace, the phone went awfully quiet. <laughs> and he just said, Sheila, don't go there. Don't go. They don't no. want to know about it. They will not. And I said, fine, we change. And we're... That's one thing you don't do is with the insurance. You tell them what you want to do, and mm -hmm. they'll either accept a risk or not, but you don't mess about with the insurance people. Just tell them straight. And if they set things, then you've just got to work with it, find a way around it somehow. And I don't mean by taking stupid risks. Mm -hmm. You've got to go with the flow of that because it's just too important. So we took off from Riyadh. I think Neville flew this flight. He was pilot. And we're all looking out to the left because, of course, Iran's over there. But we weren't investigated by any MiGs. I think we'd have all just quietly had heart attacks if we were. And uh, before long, you're in Pakistan airspace. And in Karachi, they were just lovely. Pakistanis were just lovely. Very, very warm, friendly, welcoming, very helpful. It seems, from what you've said, everywhere you've been, you've been treated quite nicely by ATC and ground handling. Absolutely. I think that I think an awful lot of it is your own attitude. And if you go in anywhere like this, really throwing your weight about and being arrogant, they've got their own quiet ways of uh, making life. Well, there's just no point to it, because we found just most people were just very, very curious and interested. And what's this little aeroplane doing? And yeah. the fact that there was actually a woman on board also doing some of the flying. It, they were just curious. And another thing that opened doors for us was the charity that we supported, which is Orbis, which for anyone who doesn't know, it's an international organisation and it delivers ophthalmic training to medical personnel in developing countries. 
and one of the reasons why I supported it, I found it on the internet. It does it by means of the world's only flying eye hospital, which is a converted DC-10 airliner. And you've got this fabulous picture of the airliner flying in twilight. It's just sheer magic. Um, and I just thought, well, that's what we want to do. So one Saturday night, after several glasses of wine, it seemed like a really good idea to call the project Flight of a Thousand Eyes with the aim of raising enough money to pay for 1,000 cataract operations at £20 each. We've actually raised £8,000, but it's, it's a long old hole. But anyway, I'm going to do my best to fulfil it because we simply had an Orbis sticker on the side of the aircraft and wherever we went, people in Egypt, out in the desert, people in India, people in Bangladesh, they recognised that sign. And the, the warmth of the response that you got from them because you were doing something to help them. Mm -hmm. And it just comes back. And it really was very striking in the Muslim countries that helping your community, you know, because it's something about the warmth of those people we can chat about the weather, but their conversations very quickly get into the important things in life, you know, about your families and how you are and what your life situation is. They don't, perhaps they just don't mess about with superficial stuff. But as soon as they know that you've got an open attitude and you're wanting to help, mm -hmm. by gum, the warmth that comes back, the helpfulness that comes back is pretty impressive. And I think it was at Nagpur, the manager of the airport saw the Orbis sticker. He helped us. He actually came all the way across the airport to where we were to see that we were all right. And he saw the Orbis sticker and we told him what it was. And I think when we said mentioned the thousand eyes, he said, well, I can line you up a thousand people that you can help. And I said, look, we're, we're sorry about this, but we're actually doing it to raise money for the organization that does this work. But you could actually see the appreciation. Mm -hmm. And somewhere else, I, th I don't know whether this was in Bangladesh, somebody there said, oh, my brother is the new technical director in New York. So that, because they've got an office in Bangladesh. So the connections, mm -hmm. and, but it was the, just the common humanity feeling. And I think that struck just about everywhere. And I think it was, even when we got to Australia, we met Mission Aviation Fellowship. On your travels, and especially in the more remote areas and the tougher areas, you just find amazing people doing amazing things. But it also means that when your trip is over, you don't back off what you've promised. It's like a point of honour to follow it through because what those we thought we ought to support a charity. We never did this for charity to start with, but we thought we ought to do something. Mm -hmm. And then when you see the benefits quite unasked for but the benefits that come pouring back to you you sort of think you can't use this you actually have to fulfill it yeah. well, that was my thought anyway okay so uh, after pakistan we're off to india next yes india was next and everybody warned me about the bureaucracy but even i couldn't quite imagine the fact that i was going to have to fill in 15 forms before they would let us in. And what amazed me was that each form contained exactly the same information. <laughs> but they were very, very charming, very friendly. And what I learned about India was if a bureaucrat says to you, please take a seat, this may take some time, you're looking at a minimum of three hours. Yeah. But anyway, we, we stayed overnight in Ahmadabad, which is an industrial city. 
And flying from Pakistan into India was really interesting because it's salt flats, a place called the Rutch of Khan, and it's just all white on the ground. From Ahmadabad, we went to Nagpur, which is another industrial city. And as you go further east, the countryside becomes low hills and very rural, with a much less dense population than you expect. But, of course, India is a huge country. And then into Calcutta, which was incredibly densely populated, an awful lot of poverty. And we had about three nights there and went to the, visit the botanical gardens where they've got the biggest tree in India. It covers eight acres it started from a central trunk and the branches go out and they drop roots as the branch extends outside which it drops another trunk. I called it nature's shade because it was, it was lovely. And from India we went into Chittagong in Bangladesh and then we had our epic flight over Burma and then we come down into Thailand. And once we landed in Chiang Mai, we should have rested, but no, I insisted we went on and I flew the next leg into Bangkok and made a tired landing. So we, we had three days in Bangkok, which was very nice, including a lobster lunch at a fish restaurant. John wanted to try lobster. So this thing was lifted, hissing and spitting out of its tank. And it came back about 40 minutes later on a plate, looking very nice, and we ate it. But the lobster had the last laugh. It cost a cool £200. So we sort of came out of the restaurant almost with empty pockets and about one and sixpence between us. <laughs> and from there, we went to Phuket, where we had to do a go-around, because Phuket is a very awkward uh, runway. It's quite narrow, relatively short. The jets always landed about seven-eighths of the way down, and, of course, it ends in the sea. There's hills either side. There's hills on final. And we just basically were too high. But it did cause confusion because there was an airliner trying to get in and there's relatively low cloud. And the foreign radio operators in the tower and the ground frequency, there were two ladies who were quite tense about it all. They, I think they could smell there was a bit of danger here. So they changed frequencies very fast and the, the accents were very strong and it was just not a nice moment. I think John was under... I just tended to keep quiet because you just think, well, what can you say? Mm -hmm. All you're just going to do is add to a very busy headset and just be another distraction. I didn't know where this damned airliner was, but not a nice feeling. So from there we went on down to Bali, flying past the volcanoes, including a big shield volcano. You can see right into it. And we couldn't get a map for this part of the journey, so we were flying on a scanned page from Neville's school atlas. <laughs> and I was navigating, and we were coming near, I think they call it Denpasar Airport, and um, I was saying, well, there is a map, but it only goes up to 3,000 feet, and John's looking at this big volcano, and saying, I don't like the look of that, he says, I'm going round that. I said, John, you don't have to worry, it's only 3,000 feet, it was 3,000 metres. Just <laughs> <laughs> a bit different. Yeah. Just slightly different. Yeah. So from there we then went into um, Penang in Malaysia, then into Singapore, and we did try to get away from Singapore. We had to do it twice because I turned back on the first occasion because it was just a thick wall of black out in the ocean. I just thought, no point. So back we went. We actually had three days in Singapore and visited the Raffles Hotel. So from there we went on to Palembang in Indonesia. And we landed there and very, they were ever so friendly. And the man came out and asked me for two forms, aircraft documents, and he kept saying, well, where's your whatever it was? And I'm thinking, what's he talking about? 
and it was a military security clearance and flight approval. Now we did have a permit, and we did have we had fly the flight plan. So why these two documents should suddenly appear? But anyway, there was a sort of a slightly wary hour. But I just thought we're not crooks. We're all right. They're going to let us in, and they did. Mm-hmm. And we went from there then to actually. I think I've jumped myself. I think Bali, Jakarta was next. And we had um, the alternator warning light came on at about 9,000 feet over Jakarta. And they knew we had a problem. They just brought us straight in. And we were parked up next to a big aeroplane. And the next thing, the engineer comes along with his five assistants. The engine cowlings are off. And it was so funny to these six black heads all peering into the engine. <laughs> And they found a little burnt-out piece of wire, and it cost us £75 to have it replaced. And that was the only engineering charge I had from taking off at Netherthorpe to getting my aeroplane back out of the crate at Gamston. Brilliant. The whole trip. And that was... It was 139 flying hours. I was just... When you tell people that, we were just really blessed on this trip. I, I truly believe somebody up there was looking after us. So from there, Palembang, we went to Jakarta. Jakarta, we went on to Bali. I got mixed up with Bali. And then from Bali, we went on to Kupang on West Timor. And this was the last stop in Indonesia, the next stop, Australia. Mm-hmm. And I flew that particular leg. Well, the whole idea was mine. So I thought on one or two occasions, I, I pulled rank because I just did. <laughs> and... Um, that was quite an emotional morning because it's like, this is it. A few hours time, you'll have done it. And I really tried to remain as alert and aware as possible because I knew this was going to be very special. No matter what happens in my life, this is only going to happen once. And um, we did a lovely flight over the Timor Sea, 250 miles and one oil rig. We saw this flame burning thing. What's that? And it was an Australian oil rig. And then you're coming into Darwin and they asked us to fly a particular radial to keep us out of controlled airspace. And you think of all the thousands of miles we've come, the size of Australia, but they still wanted And we came in and I can remember approaching Australia and we saw these clouds. You, normally where you see clouds there's land because mm-hmm. it causes the clouds to form. But out in the middle of the sea... In the middle of the ocean, you get these banks of cloud, and you think, well, where's the land? And there isn't, and I presume it's some sort of airflow that would cause it to form. But it was John who said, that's Australia, and it was Bathurst Island. And then coming down finally into Darwin, that was very exciting. I have to say, I did bump my landing slightly. It was <laughs> two small goals, shall we say. And then when you sort of taxi in, you think, God, we've finally done it. And they then give you a canister of insecticide and they say squirt that round the cabin and sit there for five minutes and says on the side do not ingest so we breathe it in instead but they made us very welcome we all went out that night and got very drunk and the next day we came back and did our second 50 hour service and then we set off across Arnhem land to Gove on the northwest side of the gulf and that's where we had some assistance from Mission Aviation Fellowship well they didn't actually have to do anything for us but accommodation was hard to find and what the chap who was in charge of the office there just just gave us his phone number and said if you're stuck and come say it mine and you know i just find this amazing it's lovely, isn't it? absolutely beautiful so anyway fortunately we did find a hotel but it's nice to have a backup and then across the gulf 
to Normanton, which is in the bottom left-hand corner of the Gulf, 400 miles across the sea. I'm not sure I would choose to do it again. When we got to Normanton, the airport was locked, surrounded by barbed wire, and we were stuck. So Neville, who was 70 and walks with a limp, we took two ladders off the fuel bows. I put one up against the fence, the other one threw it. And Neville limped off down the road and made contact with a man called Ron Sternfeld, a local man. And um, Ron came back to the airport and he just touched a magnetic button on the gate and the gate opened. It's fine if you know. I think he yeah, thought we yeah. were right, set of plonkers. <laughs> so he came the next day and gave his little tour of the town and then we took off for Cairns. And we had two or three days in Cairns and we did get in the local newspaper because we had contacts there and we also had a chance to go snorkelling on the Great Barrier Reef, which is stunning. The marine life is stunning. Now, we were going to go down the east coast via Mackay and Brisbane to Sydney, but the weather was bad, so with the help of another local pilot who saw us sitting there looking confused, and he just said, come to the office, we'll talk about it. And he gave us a cup of coffee and got out a load of old maps and said, I would go back inland to the desert, to Longreach, where Qantas was founded, fly south to Burke and then back over the mountain. He said, the weather's always much better inland. So we did. And Longreach was, again, lovely, Bush Airfield. And we're on to the last two or three flights now. I think it was John flew that leg. Neville flew the next flight to Burke. And that is... 400 miles over the desert and we're at 9,000 feet and then you look out to the west and there's like two and a half thousand miles of desert and the sense of space is just amazing it's just mind-blowing mm -hmm. the Australian desert was different to the African desert and that is a lot flatter and there's much less people live there the Saudi desert had a lot of habitation and the Egyptian desert was quite hilly with lots of sand dunes, just as you imagine it to be. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the Australian desert just had such an amazing sense of space. And if people get lost in the desert, you've had it, because there's, there's nobody actually lives there, or there's very few settlements. And then from Burke, we flew, and I flew the last leg, again, I wanted the last leg. And we flew over, we followed the Mitchell Highway for about 100 miles. Good place to land if you have a problem. And then over the mountains into Sydney, and we're coming in over the Bankstown suburbs. It's just like coming in over Sheffield, and you think, you know, it's people's houses, and we're there. And we had a lovely welcome at Sydney from the engineers. It was so low-key, and that, that's what I liked about it, completely low-key. And all the tension of the journey was gone, because we were back in our own language and culture. Mm -hmm. And the Chadwicks made me very, very welcome and really humoured me as they took the aircraft to bits. And it, it was painful to see this lovely aeroplane with its wings taken off and its wheels taken off and its tail gone. And um, they really had a lovely gift for me at the end where they actually did the work for nothing. They were taking the aircraft apart to ship it back to the UK? Yes, in a crate. It, um, the side loader came and the crate was put on and taken down to Sydney docks. And that was a pretty sad feeling. But um, just really nice to be with the Chadwicks, who were just incredibly kind. And I had one lovely moment. I'll never forget this. And I think, I don't know whether Michael did this just to show off or just to boost me. But two Australians had arrived at their hangar to test fly a big corporate jet. And I got so used to the hangar, I was just allowed 
you just use your common sense, but you're allowed to go more or less where you want because they knew me and we were getting on very well. And I sort of saunter through the hangar and Michael Chadwick is there saying to these two guys, and she did it in a bog standard 182. <laughs> and the look of sheer awe on their face, and they were just speechless. And I think, go on, Michael, go on, Michael, keep going. <laughs> and it was just one of those moments that you just sort of think, yeah, you have done something. Yeah. But it was the speechlessness that just so <laughs> good for the ego, but a um, yeah. bit foolish, really. That's a lovely, lovely outcome. Okay, so that's uh, that's Australia done. What's yes. what's the next one? Well, when I arrived back from Australia, I was jet lagged for about a day, and then I sort of sauntered down to Netherthorpe, feeling really trying to look nonchalant, but with a big smirk on my face. And a friend of mine I met, we were having a cup of tea on one of the picnic tables, and he looked at me and said exactly the same question. Well, what are you going to do next? And absolutely tongue-in-cheek, I said, well, there's only one thing left to do, and that's go around the world. And that's what it is. Excellent. If I can... Uh, there's a lot of planning and working out to do. But I've got an aeroplane. I've had the engine rebuilt, and it's flying beautifully. And uh, I think John is interested in the journey. So, um, in a sense, watch this space. It'll be at least a couple of years before we uh, get round to doing because... There's other things to look at in things like oxygen, ferry tanks and HF radio. Mm -hmm. And this one is a bigger journey. I probably will be looking for, I will be looking for sponsorship um, with some of the aspects of it because uh, this journey is going to be longer. Just out of interest, you know, what, what's the longest crossing of water around the world trip? Where would yes, that be? It will be? Greenland, Iceland or something like that? No, it'll be from Hawaii to California. Right. And that's, depending on the route that you take and where you land, but that's a minimum of 2,000 miles. Wow. And the, um, the sec, for, you'd always want to have, I estimate, just as a reserve, um, you'd want to have at least 500 miles reserve. Now, if you get halfway, you know, this, it's one of these things, and it was like the flight over Burma. You have your point of no return. And if you're travelling with a tailwind, which we were then, and you turn back, of course you're into a headwind. So your point of no return will come considerably shorter than the halfway mark. And it's a bit like that coming from Hawaii to California. So you've really got to be very sharp about the weather and look at the wind, look at what the winds are at different levels and you might choose to fly at a higher level or a lower level depending on where you can get your tailwind yeah. or certainly reduce your headwind and for that flight you know you could get to 1500 miles you're well past the point of no return and you've got to take what comes and that's why it needs such very careful planning. On your trip to Australia were there any hairy moments you said there was the the alternator light but apart from that did you have any sort of uh tentative moments when you were out of contact with ATC anywhere? Well, we were certainly out of contact from ATC because my radios were pretty ordinary in the sense that um, their range was perhaps 80 to 100 miles on a good day. Certainly consistently would be 80 miles. Um, so there was quite a few times where you were out of touch and going across um, Gulf of Carpentaria, we certainly were out of touch with the NDB on Mornington Island. And there were other places where you're out of touch. And, but what you do is you talk to a passing airliner, and there's nearly always a passing airliner. It's an interesting thing. 
in Europe, in fact, really, once you get out of the UK, where you've got to fly VF4, you're very constricted for the airspace that you can fly in. You get down to Europe and things loosen up a bit. But once you get south of the Mediterranean, you have to fly at 10,000 feet and you fly along the airway routes. And flying along airway routes where you've got these reporting points and it all comes up on the GPS is that actually navigation is remarkably straightforward. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's just completely different. And then it's when you sort of come back to the UK... It's quite restricted again. In Australia, they're quite regulated, but um, VF4 goes up to 9,000 feet, and that gives you lots of opportunities for crossing terrain because the higher you are, mm-hmm. basically the safer you are. So apart, we didn't really have any desperately hairy moments. The one moment in flying terms, real flying terms, where it was borderline slightly was probably over Burma, but we made the right decision. And that's what several professionals said to me. The ability simply to turn back, make the decision and just turn back, mm-hmm. is your biggest safety factor. Yeah. And we cer- certainly turn back twice. I have no qualms about turning back. Um, when you know that it's going to be a much more comfortable arrival. Yeah. Yeah. And after all that daredevilness, you've actually written a book about all this? Yes, I have written a book which, funnily enough, is called Flight of a Thousand Eyes. And it's really a brief account of the journey and it's with some pictures because I know that pilots don't often like to read too much. They like pictures. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, it's actually it's for the charity Orbis. When I came back, I wrote this in the space of three or four weeks and got it sorted. And um, I had it fully sponsored by Sheffield Aero Club, JW North End, our local printers, who actually published my first book and um and my second and um then also diamond uk where i actually had my aircraft engineered because they they tend to do other little airplanes as well over at diamond at gamston and i found them very very supportive and helpful when i was going off so between them it's fully sponsored and all the proceeds go to orbis and to get hold of a copy, they can either contact me at Flying Podcast or go to Sheffield Aero Club at Netherthought. They can indeed go to Sheffield Aero Club because there are copies there for sale. And the other thing that I might like to mention is that I also do um, quite a number of talks, including one about this mm-hmm. journey, which I've done quite a few of in the last 12 months, and it seems to have gone down pretty well. I've been a speaker for many years. So if anybody Good. feels they would like to hear about it... Um, Needless to say, I'm doing it on a professional basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they can, I'll be leaving some leaflets at Netherthorpe if they want to pick something up there. Or again, drop me a line and I'll, I'll forward it on to Sheila. Yes, that would be absolutely fine. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Sheila. I'm very impressed. Well, thank you. It's been very nice talking to you. And it's really nice having a chance to talk about it because once I get going, I can't stop. <laughs> well done. Thank you. OK, then. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Sheila. Uh, a tremendous achievement, I'm sure you'll agree. If you would like to contact Sheila, uh, if you'd like a copy of Sheila's book, or you're interested in hiring Sheila as a, an after-dinner speaker, uh, you can contact me here on the usual email address. That's steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Steve at flyingpodcast, all one word, dot co.uk. Send me uh, an email and I'll forward it on to Sheila. 
Uh, remember, all the proceeds of the book do go to a good cause. Uh, you can also use that email address if you'd like to con- contact me about the podcast. Uh, so, thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing from you, and I'll speak to you again soon.